You pour your heart into your business, you give to your clients, and you take care of your family and your community. And you put off taking care of yourself. When you only focus on doing, you bottle up your emotions, which taxes your body and depletes your energy. You struggle to show up, to keep up, and to create results. My name is Dr. Mary Maduna Gross. About 10 years ago, I burned out of the only career I thought I'd ever have. I got divorced, and I was crushed with chronic illness and pain. Now I have a business that I love, a husband I can grow with, and my health is on track. Through the power of coaching, I have come to recognize the resilience and power I carry within my soul. You have this resilience and power as well. Welcome to Inflow with Soul, where we create the space for playful restoration. Space to pause, to play, and to connect with your soul. Because when you take care of you, your results will take care of themselves. Welcome to another episode of Inflow with Soul. As you know, my name is Dr. Mary Maduna Gross, and today we are joined by Dr. Monica Orgando. Did I say that correctly? Orgando, no R in it. Just Ogando. Ogando. Thank you. Sometimes mm-hmm. the R just slipped in. Yeah. So let me tell you a little bit about Monica. She is the CEO and founder of the award-winning firm CEO Mastery, an executive and leadership development firm working with exceptional leaders who want to elevate brand position, engage their people, and increase profits while honoring their true purpose. In addition, Dr. Argando's success with CEO Mastery, she took her first company to rank as one of Inc. 500's fastest growing private companies in the United States. She's the author of three books, twice a TEDx speaker and keynote in the areas of leadership, marketing and communication. She has a background in finance and holds two doctorates, one in psychology and one in comparative religions. (laughs) Dr. Monica has become a foremost authority in building sustainable, leveraged, and profitable enterprises. Wow. (laughs) Like, I am so excited about what I I hear in there. I can't wait to learn more from you, uh, get to know the the Monica behind the words. Um, But the words themselves uh, give me the chills a little bit. Wow. Um, Thank you so much for that. Yeah, you know, if I could, and I and I do want to get to your story, but here's why mm-hmm. that's so this is so important to me. What's really standing out to me. When I got into business coaching, I came from leadership coaching, went into business coaching, and I really enjoyed it. Um, because there's leadership coaching within business coaching. Mm-hmm. But the business side, like there was just something different about my clients than uh, than other business clients. Mm-hmm. And I I just had the hardest time. Like what is making, what sets my clients aside from the traditional business? And, and I just kept looking and I just recently discovered the conscious entrepreneur movement. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that is... That is what makes my clients different. That what's what makes me different. And I see in your description, you highlight the conscious entrepreneur of what I would call pillars. And that yeah. is um, leading with purpose, leading with people. And we know that then profits come. The profits come. Yeah, that's exactly right. So 
gosh, you are just like a, the crossing off all the boxes. Yes, exactly. So thank you. Thank you again for making time for us and for this conversation today. I, I can't wait to learn more. So let's turn it over to you. Yeah. You know, the, the funny, the fun part about that is that none of that was on purpose. <laughs> Everything was something that I learned as I was walking along, including how I started in entrepreneurship. I, my first career out of college was as a financial planner, as a stockbroker. And we all, anybody that's worked in corporate knows that just because the market fluctuates doesn't mean that your sales quota don't do or your goals do, right? You still have to meet them. And so I developed a way to continue to attract and engage and retain high net worth clients, which were my portfolio. And those chicken scratch notes that were my own observations about what was working and not working became a curriculum that then I was teaching to other associates and other sales folks in other satellite offices. And then when my performance review came, I thought I was going to get the promotion and the title and I was going to move from associate to senior associate. And it was just like, I was ready. Right. Yeah. And I was pulled to the side by a friend and colleague and said, you know, I don't know if you know this, but they're about to fire you. I just heard them talking about this meeting that you're about to walk into, which was, of course, a huge shock to me. And um, unbeknownst to them, because I hadn't said this to anybody, but unbeknownst to them, a week prior to that meeting, I was diagnosed with stage four cervical cancer and was given about a year to live. Now, mind you, at the time I was in my mid-20s, my daughter was barely three years old, and I was in a stunned. I was stunned in a state of shock. And it's kind of like, you know, people talk about fight or flight. Well, there's also right. freeze. Freeze, yes. <laughs> and I was frozen into like, what do I do with this information? Who do I tell? What do I do now? And that jolted me into action. That that pulled me aside and tell me what I was walking into, jolted me into action. Because at the time I was like, wait, I don't even know if I'm going to live in a year and you people are messing around with my living, you, you know, with my, my livelihood. Oh, you know, inside. Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> and so I got real protective. I got real mama bear because in my mind, it wasn't just my livelihood or my career that was at stake. It was my ability to provide for my child. And that long story short, that firing squad became a negotiating table because they said that they wanted to keep my intellectual property and give me a generous severance package in its stead. And I was like, wait, what intellectual property? I didn't sign an intellectual property agreement. So they looked at my personnel file. And, you know, when you first get hired, you have to fill out a gazillion pieces of paper. You don't, sometimes you don't even know what you're signing. But right. I do remember distinctly thinking to myself, this piece of paper says that whatever I create becomes their work product. And I was like, I don't even know what I'm going to have for breakfast tomorrow, let alone what I might create while I'm employed here. So I didn't sign it. But I also didn't make a big deal of it. And so it just kind of went under the radar until it became relevant. And that that's a lesson in and of itself that sometimes our biggest treasures are things that we're just not paying attention to. And um, so that became a way to to twist the conversation into my favor. And then they, because they wanted the intellectual property and I wanted mm -hmm. them to have it, sure. you know, for a price. <laughs> sure, right, right. <laughs> So we negotiated a consulting agreement that then became a 10 year long uh, relationship. And my last employer became my first client. Mm -hmm. And I remember so clearly 
the lady from accounting said, you know, who do we make this check out to? And I was like, oh, Ogando Associates, because it was my last name. And it felt so big to say Associates. It's like, there's no Associates. The Associates <laughs> is me and my baby, you know? Yeah, right, right. And, <laughs> and I went home and I incorporated and I opened a checking account. I was like, there's somewhere I got to put this check, which is another lesson in entrepreneurship is that you have to be prepared for the blessings to land. You can call them in all you want to, That's but right. you got to give them runway, right? And, uh, or an off-ramp. So, so, you know, it felt almost like my inter- entering into entrepreneurship was easy in that I didn't have to go out there, hang up your shingle and then, and then make it rain. My, my first, uh, my first client was literally a corporate account mm-hmm. and I wasn't worried about whether they were going to pay the bills on time. I knew they would be right. Um, but then fast forward about eight years later, um, then I got the Inc. 500 as one of the fastest growing companies in the United States. And I was so proud, et cetera. But, that, but 2008, as for many of us, was one of the worst financial years of my life. Right. And I lost so much money in the market and with real estate and, and clients dried up because everybody was like, you know, in a contraction. Mm-hmm. I said to myself, if these people know how broke I was, they would snatch that award so fast. They'd be like, give me that. Yeah. <laughs> fast is growing, nothing. Fast is <laughs> contracting, you mean, you know? Um, <laughs> and so that allowed me to, to start again at my beginnings and never breathe a word about my loss, like the poem If by Rudyard Kipling says. And um, it also allowed me to a pause to say, okay, how do you? Instead of being reactive to the needs of a client or the needs of the market, how do you want to proceed? What do you want to talk about? What do you want to coach about? What do you want to keynote on? What, how do you want your day-to-day? What are you doing on a Monday, on a Tuesday, on a Wednesday? When, what time do you get off? What time do you start? Like It was just pure design mode, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that allowed me the ability to generate those questions with the people that I was, and the executives and the, and the entrepreneurs that I was coaching as well. Uh, because a lot of times what happens is we come from corporate and we just start doing what we did in corporate. Right. We go to, it, it's like, even though your commute is now 30 seconds, right? <laughs> but you still, you know, get out of bed at such a time so that you can be at your desk at such a time so that you can take your lunch at such a time and you're still a cog in somebody else's wheel, but it's your wheel. Right. So you get to design how this thing moves. Right. And so for me, that was, that was incredibly liberating to be able to, look at my calendar and look at my networks and look at my, who I said yes to and who I took money from, et cetera. The other piece of it is that just as in corporate, they give you like a 401k and they give you a retirement account and so forth that you then have to put money into. And that secures this tax deferred so that you pay taxes later or uh, tax free so that you don't pay any taxes based on your uh, tax rate when you're um, 65 or older. But nobody tells entrepreneurs how to do that. Right. You, you are your own 401k. You are your own retirement plan. So I never stopped investing in the market. OK. And what that allowed me to do was that when the client stuff dried up, when I could no longer or when I was compromised in my ability to drum up money from the market because I didn't want to launch another product because I didn't want to take on another client or because, you know, not every, not all money is good money. Sometimes you have mm-hmm. to turn it away, but you still have bills to pay. Mm-hmm. And so being able to still uh, continue to invest in the market as I was running my business allowed me the integrity 
to be able to say to clients what they needed to to hear from me without me being concerned about, oh, you know, I don't want to say that because that might shortchange the engagement or that they may fire me or they may say, no, they're not going to renew, et cetera, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. and for some people that were clearly not a fit, it allowed me to be like, you know, I'm not the coach for you. I'm not, I'm not the consultant for you. I'm not the speaker for you. And to be able to say that full-throatedly and not worry about whether I was meeting my financial commitment or not, which is part of financial freedom, isn't just about flossing on the gram. <laughs> it's right. about being able to make decisions without worrying or not whether you can afford to make those decisions or not. You know, I, th- that's really interesting. Um, the way that you describe this, there seems to be this context of clarity about what, who you wanted to be, what your goals were, the impact that you wanted to have. Were you clear on that or were you still figuring that out as, as you were going along? Well, I think it's a matter of contrast. I think it is at once a decision, but also a process. So what I mean by that is that I knew that I wanted to continue to live And I knew that I wanted to continue to provide for myself and my child. So I wanted to figure out how to uh, continue to work with, at the time, Charles Schwab, um, so that they got what they wanted and I got what I wanted. Right. And and if somebody is wanting to fire you, I do not want to continue to be your employee. So that's clearly not an option on the table, but let's see what else we can work out. And so I always came from the the point of view of creating win-win solutions. but it requires, to your point about clarity, it requires that you get really clear about what you do want, like the result that you want, not the how. Because a lot of times we get so caught up in how we get there that if you don't get a particular, if you don't get it in a particular way, then you're not satisfied with the result. And I was not attached to the how. Okay. I knew the result that I wanted and then I was flexible in the approach. Mm-hmm. So that's the part that's the decision. The outcome is the decision and the process is figuring out what's the how that will best get me there and feels good to me. Yeah. So what were some of your challenges then? Because um, again, you, you're, you started, you kicked your business off with a corporate uh, mm-hmm. client that you had already been working with, right? So there wasn't yeah. even a lot for you to, to shift in terms of how you were delivering the product. Mm-hmm. A, it's created mm-hmm. already, you've been delivering it already. It's really kind of a continuation. So what were some of your unique challenges maybe then as you decided to grow your business? Well, I mean, even while I was inside of the financial services industry to to convince somebody to trust me with millions of dollars, even though I'm in my 20s, they can still smell the breast milk <laughs> behind my ears. Some people were like, you know, four times my age. I'm like, what does this girl yeah. know about nothing, you know? Yeah. And so I had to be able to command trust, not authority. Because at that point, if if you associate authority with age, I didn't have any, right? right. 20 something years old talking to people who are in the 60s and 70s. Um, but to command enough trust that they knew my proficiency in the market, my commitment to their best interests, that's a fiduciary responsibility that everybody who is in an advisory position, whether it's coaching, consulting, or, you know, a financial advisor, um, you always have to keep that front of mind. Mm-hmm. And part of what has shifted in the industry is that the way that people were compensated in the past was commissions based on the performance of the market versus whether that was good for the for the client or not. Okay. Um, so I had to, from the very beginning, that was why integrity was so important to me because I was like, I need to be able to make decisions that I can sleep with. Right. Um, 
And so, so that was one challenge. The another challenge was, like I said, creating that trust, right? We, we talk about no like and trust factor. And then once I started to, um, once I started like under my own name, Ogando Associates, um, now has become CEO Mastery. Then it was a matter of um, translating what I knew into other industries. Because everybody's okay. favorite objection is that, yeah, but that won't work for me. Yeah, but exactly. my business is different. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. But my market is, you know, a little more niched or whatever the case may be, or not niched enough, et cetera. And so I had to focus what I was doing on principles that, of course, principles are applicable everywhere else. Strategies might have to shift according sure. to industry, according to market, um, you know, ups and downs and so forth. But the principles are principles because they stand the test of time. And so for me, that one of the challenges was, do I want to be a, a step, um, tactical mm-hmm. consultant mm-hmm. or do I want to speak into the leadership, the commonality, the humanity that all of these leaders have in common so that then they can go out and execute whatever strategies we can come up with. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was being able to take a, a, a stand back in that way. Um, mm-hmm. And then deciding that I wanted to market the way that I wanted to market. I am not the kind of person that's going to be out there flossing on the gram. I'm just, I don't have the time. I don't have the inclination. I don't have the interest. Um, but I am so good at one-on-one connections. Mm-hmm. So the word of mouth works well for me. The referrals work well for me. Okay, mm-hmm. well then, you, but you can't duplicate yourself, right? Like the yeah. amount of money that I want to come in is not commensurate with the 24 hours in the day that I have. Right. So I'm going to have to make this automatic. I'm going to have to make it dele- delegatable. I'm going to have mm-hmm. to make it easy to duplicate. I'm going to have to give my clients words to say to their people so that they're sp- spreading my message without right. me having to be involved. So being, making sure, again, see what I mean about like the result that I want and then being yes. flexible in the approach. Um, so then I had to figure out, well, how's, what's the easiest, fastest way to get that result that aligns with who I am so mm-hmm. that I won't have to feel forced or that I'm pretending to be somebody that I'm not. Right. Those are some of the challenges that I had to kind of, you know, figure out along the way. I love it. Again, I, I really like how you're talking about how you had to take strategies and adapt them to your strengths, to your preferences, um, in order to meet your goals. Yeah. Uh, because that's the other thing that I think I've seen from, um, you know, some of the clients that come to me frustrated is that what they've done is just try to do what they've been told to do or to do what somebody else has done, right? And they're they're not considering who that other person was. They're not even necessarily considering their, themselves, their own mm-hmm. goals. They're not even considering their own preferences and strengths. They're just, mm-hmm. they see the results that somebody else got. This is what they did to get it. So now if I did that, I'm going to get the same results. And they're often right. really frustrated and right. disappointed yeah. uh, in that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, part of it is that it it comes from an outdated framework in the industrial revolution. People were exchangeable. You could just put one worker in the factory and then while the other one went to break, while the other one went to lunch, while the other one was disabled, while the other one died, (laughs) you know, it was just cogs and wheel. But now that we are in an information in revolution, as it were, I mean, it's been happening for quite some time, right? But we're still in the middle of it. Now you have to think about, well, how do people digest? How do people receive information, digest information? How do people act on that information? And how does that, how does my acting on that information impact the way you digest and receive information and then keep the ripple effect going? Those are different questions. And so it it demands a different intelligence from us. It demands us to go back to some, some what makes us different from animals, which is 
which is the thinking piece of it, the reasoning piece of it, but also how to navigate uh, relationships. Right. Because the way that animals do relationships is very instinctual. It's about mating and it's about survival and so forth. But we are, you know, two or three notches above that. <laughs> so, right. So it gets more nuanced. Absolutely. And I, uh, speaking of the nuances too, one of the other things that you were talking about is, is having to get others to trust you. Mm-hmm. To me, that is all about who you're being, not necessarily about what we're doing. Yes. But I think what gets confusing is we can only demonstrate our being through our doing, right? Mm-hmm. So, so mm-hmm. doing has to come into play there. But talk to me, if you can, a little bit about what your mindset was when you, when you said, I want to become trustable. I want my clients to trust me. How did you approach that? Well, not to nitpick semantics, but I had a different question. My question was, okay. I, given that I am a trustworthy person, how do I make that land? Okay. Because, because the way, the way I heard what you said, it, it was almost like I had to become a trusting, trustworthy person. And I was already that. Right. Sure. And so sure. then it was like, well, you know, I can understand somebody else's concern about giving millions of dollars to a 20 something year old woman to go invest it and, and make something out of my retirement or make something out of my trust or leave a legacy for my children. And for some of those people, they were themselves facing, um, you know, terminal diseases and so forth. So it was very important for them to secure, um, you know, their nest egg, but then also yeah. amplify it for their family so that they, they could be taken care of. And so for me, being trustworthy means first empathy, being yeah. able to put myself in somebody else's shoes and understand how they see the world through their own lenses and what are their priorities, what are their fears and concerns and so forth. To be able to articulate that to someone in words that perhaps they themselves haven't even admitted to themselves also elevates the degree of trust because it's like, oh, she's in my head. She knows what yeah. I'm thinking. She knows what I'm feeling. How did you know that about me? We just spent 15 minutes together, right? Yeah. And and then to be able to... um by putting myself in that person's shoes, I would know what they would say yes to and what they, say, what they would say no to. Some of that requires, obviously, exposure to people, right? You have to know. That's that's why the PhD in psychology, because I wanted to know how people think, how people digest, make decisions, etc. Um, and so I'm fascinated by uh, what makes people tick, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes, for me, this is what, what, what I found fascinating. For me, a decision was such an of course that it, I would be completely flummoxed as to why somebody would say no to something that was so obviously in your favor. Yeah. And what's in the way? What are you looking at that you can't see how obvious the solution this is, right? Right. right and right. so that fascinated me. And for me, that was that was delving into inner child um, work, shadow work, uh, internal family systems and part systems and, and other f- psychological frameworks about how people make decisions and, and what gets in the way in terms of like the reptilian brain and their fear and their doubt and self-limiting beliefs and things like that. And so to be able to, um, to be able to articulate the part of themselves that they haven't yet integrated and to do so without judgment, to do so right. without indictment, to do so without weaponizing it also creates a level of trust that is hard to duplicate because it requires that you not only get in touch with your humanity, but that you make space for somebody else's. hundred percent. And that really, is, I, you did a beautiful job of describing the who of, mm-hmm. of the who that then drives the way that you engage with your clients or mm-hmm. whomever yeah. is sitting across the table yeah. or across zoom from you. <laughs> right. 
Right. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. That's a really beautiful description and, and encapsulates that who really well. Um, and I think it says a lot about you as well. And so as I was listening to you and just, I love the way that you describe things. Um, <laughs> what I was thinking about is the story that you told me about how you got started in the first place. And I mm-hmm. think that's an important context here. Would you be willing to share that story? Yeah, I, um, uh, do you mean like the, the cancer memo? <laughs> the, well, uh, before that, right? Well, where you moved, you know, when you were young, where you lived, oh, when you moved yeah. and then k- kind of that whole experience of landing that first job. I forget what your role was, but it wasn't, um, in sales. Yeah. Right. I was an executive assistant when yeah. I first came to, yeah. So I was born and raised in the Dominican Republic and my parents were well, well to do. At least I thought they were well to do mm-hmm. to hear them tell us like, nah, we were just trying to, you know, make you kids. Okay. Yeah. Um, but my experience of my childhood was anything that I asked for, I got, it wasn't like a hold on till the next paycheck. It wasn't like we had to build up to it or anything like that. And then we came to this country when I was about 10 years old and my parents went from this really abundant and expansive kind of um, experience for me to very constricted. And we had to stay in our little apartment because it's cold outside. You can't really play. You don't know these people. Don't talk to strangers. And it was just very small in that way. Um, And my parents sold all their furniture, all their belongings, everything else and came here and started again. Just like that poem says, that's my favorite line in that poem, to start again at your beginnings. Um, And they were factory workers. So they had to eat a little bit of humble pie because it was like, no, we don't we don't have a nanny anymore. We don't have somebody to to do the housekeeping. We don't have somebody to drive the children around to and from school when you have other engagements with work. And we don't have dinner parties anymore. Like on what? On paper plates, (laughs) in foldable chairs. So. For me, it allowed me to, to, to up my tolerance of risk okay. and to be okay with starting over no matter where. Mm-hmm. So we all kind of start over. Like when you go from middle school to high school, you're starting over. Right. From high school to college, yeah. you're starting over. From relationship to relationship, you start over. And there's like this new relationship energy piece of it. Like you're in love and it's exciting and it's afraid. And oh my God, and who's going to say love, I love you first? And you know, all this right. other stuff is exciting. But then there are other places where it's just terrorizing. It's like, oh my God, am I going to lose my job? How am I going to pay the rent? Blah, blah, blah. And I, I like to say that fear is just enthusiasm without the breath. Because mm. if you really allow yourself to breathe through it, you can see possibility in it. In fact, the, the Chinese character for crisis is a challenge and an opportunity put together. And so when you can look at it from the point of view of what's the opportunity here that that is being presented that wouldn't otherwise have existed had it not been a crisis called. Right. Right. Um, And so that beginning for me was um, the ability to think critically too, because I saw my parents having dinner parties and things like that. And they would talk to one person um, one way and then talk to another person differently. I'm like, are these people lying? Am I in a, am I in a family of sociopaths? (laughs) What is happening? (laughs) (laughs) Um, but what that allowed me to see is like, oh, these adults don't have answers either. And yeah. instead of it being like a world crushing paradigm crumbling experience, it was very liberating because it was like, oh, if they don't have the answers, you're free to go look for the ones that work for you. Yeah. They're, they're trying to figure it out. So it, it was compassionate in a way as, as children are. That's not like unique to Monica. Children are naturally empathic and compassionate. Yeah. Um, 
And also they don't want to make their parents wrong. So for me, it was like, okay, they're just figuring it out. So okay, let's all figure it out together, you know? Um, and so for me, that allowed me to see people um, independent of my good opinion of them or independent of my agenda for them. Mm-hmm. And to also not take on people's agenda for me. There you go. Right? So people That's say, huge. oh, you don't have the right to judge me. You have every right to judge me. I don't have to take it on, however. Yeah, right. <laughs> You're free to stay with your judgments and agenda. I, I don't have to sign up for it, though, you know? Wow. Okay. So what a unique, at, at a young age, to be able to see your parents. And, and we're not just talking adults, right? We're talking mm-hmm. your parents. Mm-hmm. And being able to say, oh, you know, they're just making this up as as we go along, too. Like, yeah. I, it was not that long ago that I came to that same conclusion myself, right? <laughs> right you right. know, as, as I, you know, work to build this business, as I'm working with other clients, it's really the only explanation that made sense is we're all just making this up. And it's okay. I think for mm-hmm. me, it was um, being willing to take risks. And right. that was kind of the the that was the mindset or the belief system that I needed to be able to say, it's okay to take a risk. We're mm-hmm. all making this up as we go along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can take big fancy risks. We can take little tiny risks, whatever we're comfortable with in the moment, but that's the only way we're going to grow. Right. Well, so one of the, one of the um, formative experiences of my childhood that allowed me to see that too was, you know, um, usually immigrant children, particularly the oldest one, has to kind of be an advocate for the family. And my parents sure. would take me to places, dentist and counselor, you know, PTA meetings to um, translate for them. Sure. And so in that conversation, my parents would have one piece of the conversation, the counselor or the dentist or the doctor or whoever would have the other piece of the conversation, and I would have all of it. Right. And so for me, it was an opportunity to see that these people are missing a part of the conversation, not because they're stupid, not because they don't know what they're talking about, not because they're evil or neglectful or whatever, but they just don't have access to this language and vice versa. Right. And so so really the key to bridge how two people see different things is to understand the language they speak, to understand the framework of the filters through which they see the world and so forth. And so for me, that became like an investigative, like a fun thing to do. What's oh the language? Gosh, yeah. What's, what are the words you use? How do you see the world such that you would come to this conclusion or make that assumption? Because it's not an automatic, you know? Right. I- I'm really in awe, really, of your observational, <laughs> not just your skills, but your commitment to it and uh, being willing just to look at what is rather than just take it for for what it is. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean... It, in a way, it is taking it for what it is, but also not making it worse than what it is, right? Because I think sometimes yeah. when we, when we, if something doesn't make sense, we sometimes jump to the conclusion that something is wrong. Right. And I stopped short of something is wrong to what am I missing? Exactly. Or, or what would make that make sense? You know what I mean? And, and I, I think that's, you're, you're helping me articulate this. So when you were talking about, you know, the, in the two languages, one had this bit of knowledge, one had this bit of knowledge. But when you describe that, you didn't describe it as the only differential was because they didn't have the language. You also said they're seeing the situation from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And right. so we have we have really two barriers here, probably yeah. seeing things from different perspectives and the the language barrier. And your curiosity drove you to observe closely both of those variables. Yeah. 
Yeah, because a lot of times we make decisions not based out of just the language that we have access to, but also our self-concept. Exactly. Our self-identity, right? So in the case of, let's say, for example, there were many times when I got in trouble at school. Mm-hmm. because I asked too many. It wasn't because I was a disciplinary problem. It was because I asked too many doggone questions. That's mm-hmm. the price you pay when you're a curious child, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> in my family, those things are celebrated. In school, they were not. It was like, we got we got things to do. We got, you know, the bell is in 20 minutes. Stop talking and, right. and asking questions so we can get through this. Um, and so my parents sometimes had to come into school to take the, to speak to the guidance counselor, to talk mm-hmm. to the teacher, et cetera. And for them... Taking time off of work, unpaid by the way, because they're factory workers, mm-hmm. to come mm-hmm. to school to talk to the to the teacher, was them being good parents, in the sense of advocating for their children, but then also putting another definition of good parenting, which is financially providing for your children, at stake. Right. So I felt guilty. I felt guilty that they had to take the time out to come to school for a meeting because I was asking too many questions, mm-hmm. and so um, so then that. For me, being the older child and the one that helps the parent, for me, it was like I'm putting my self-identity at stake as well. Right. right? I mean, these are adult language. Of I course. Mean, right. I wasn't thinking that through when I was a child, but it was it was what was happening emotionally for me. Right. And so the way that I made up for that was by being precocious and by being helpful and by getting good grades and by writing good papers and by helping my mom, my, my mom with my younger sister and brother with their homework so that they could too can get good grades, et cetera, because I'm such, so, such a burden or so troublesome that let me, let me be the investment that gets you a high ROI. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. And, and sometimes children do that. Children become this performative, like this is the way that I get love by being performative and, and by being a good girl. Yeah. So when you got that, your first job as an executive assistant, I love this story. So I really do want you to share the story about um, looking around um, at your environment and saying, there's more for me here than being an executive assistant. Yeah, because I was like, look, I live in Miami, Florida, and and, uh, the rent is high and people make it all the time. I don't want to be one of those people that don't make it. So what are the people that make it doing it? Right. And I remember that there was only one woman in that office that looked like me. She was Afro-Latina, just like me. Her name was Ines. And she had a big, long title, Senior Executive Vice President of the Latin American Caribbean Region. I mean, it was like, okay, got it. Head honcho. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I asked her, who are the people that make the most money here? And she was like, same people that make the most money anywhere, the salespeople. Oh, okay, great. How do I become one of those? <laughs> yeah. And I thought, I was really just asking for more opportunity for like put more on my plate. I want to show you my, my initiative. I want to show you that I'm ready, that I'm here. I'm committed to the job. I want to, you know, like that. And she was like, well, you know, and the financial services industry is highly regulated. So you actually have to be licensed to sell. Okay, great. I mean, I just got out of college. I just got out of like 19 credits every semester. I'm not scared. I'm not intimidated. Read one book to get one test, please. Whatever, right? <laughs> um, so she says, yeah, but you have to be sponsored in order to get licensed. Okay, great. Will you sponsor me? And she's looking at me kind of like, where is this girl getting all this chutzpah from? Like, how do you just, right? And for me, it was kind of like a bumblebee moment, right? We talk about the bumblebees not aerodynamically designed to fly, but yeah. nobody told the bumblebee, so she flies. And it was like that for me. I didn't have the couth 
to know that there are some questions that you don't ask and you ask it a different way. And, you know, you kind of hesitate when you're approaching your superior, you know, supervisor and at work. And I didn't have any of that because I was just fresh out of college and I was an executive assistant. So um, it wasn't like I was in, you know, strategy meetings looking at what other people are doing. I I was taking notes and typing things and sending emails. That's all I was doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so my ignorance helped, but that she was somebody that I could relate to and that she could relate to me, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm sure mm-hmm. now looking back on it and me being in the position that she was that many years sure. ago, I can imagine that there was a part of her that was like, there but for the grace of God go I. Yes. <laughs> and yes. so she had a little bit of patience with me. She had a little bit of like, okay, all right, you need to be under somebody's wing and let me just, <laughs> you know what I mean? Let, let me do yes. it. <laughs> yes. Um, and so we all need mentors like that. You know, I, I um, bristle when people say self-made, self-made millionaire, self-made nothing. It's like, what? Does your mother know you're not giving her credit for nothing, Mr. <laughs> self-made? Yeah, <laughs> how, did, how did you get here except through somebody else? And so, um, so for me, that was important. It was important to ask. The worst that could happen was that she would be like, Monica, it doesn't work like that. Right. Go back to your desk. And then that would have been the end of it. But she didn't. She kept answering my questions. And that was a lesson for me as well. And and a lesson for the people that I coach is that some of your results are a question away, are a challenged assumption away. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes we don't ask those questions because we're afraid what the answer might be. But you're not thinking that you might like the answer. Right. That the answer might give you, might lead you to the rabbit hole, like the like the rap, the white rabbit in the matrix, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, that was important. Um, that was an important, pivotal, formative um, experience because it allowed me to push back in other places where I didn't have internal fortitude because I didn't have the self-identity. There were times when I was just, you know, in a moment of self-doubt, in a moment of like, ah, I don't know what I'm doing with my life, you know. But having that in the background, having that part of be, being my formative history allowed me to say, okay, but if you've done it once before, you can do it again. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You don't have to believe it. Belief is only interesting when you don't have any evidence. Right. That's when belief is right. relevant. Yes. When you yeah. have evidence, you just have to duplicate. There it is. Exactly. Yeah. So before we go transition to what you are doing now, I, I really do want to take a moment and and just highlight one of the things I heard from you here is that importance of having that mentor, someone mm-hmm. who's willing to take you under their wings, teach you what they know. But the other part of that too is that none of us are self-made. We don't, we, we don't achieve anything alone. And I think one of the, that's one of our kind of limiting beliefs, uh, our entrepreneurs, right? We have this limiting belief that I have to do this all by myself. Mm-hmm. And I think that one belief in itself just really makes that world small. Like you were talking about when you, you moved to the U.S. and how small your world got. I think when, when we believe that we have to do everything ourselves, our world can only be this small. Because mm-hmm. that's all we can manage. And yeah. when we're able to find those mentors or, or find those people that um, are willing to walk this path with us, now we can expound, um, capitalize on our gifts and capitalize on theirs as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th- that's part of it for me was um, because I was the oldest of three, I was somebody else's 
mentor or model. Sometimes my right. mom would take us to the doctors. And like I remember when, when we had to get, everybody's talking about vaccinations now. When we were little and we had to get vaccines, my mom would say, you go first and don't cry so that you don't scare your brother right. and sister. Right. Now that did two things for me. One is that it gave me the responsibility of being the model or the example for somebody else. Mm -hmm. And it also, in an unspoken way, said, your experience is not as important as somebody else's experience. Mm -hmm. Right? Because it was like, I had to, my fears, I had to sublimate. I had to, you know, I couldn't throw a tantrum because what would that do to the younger children? Right? And so um, that allowed me the opportunity to see how important it was. Because I, I was resentful for a long time, Mary. I was like, why everybody got a big sister except me? <laughs> I want a big sister, Dagnabbit. <laughs> you know? And right? so I was always, I was gravitated towards the older children in school because I was like, that's my way of getting big sisters and big brothers. Right. Um, and so when I got into the working world, that was the first thing I did. I was like, okay, who can be my big sister here? Who can be my big brother here? You know? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So let's transition. What are you doing now? What you, you're you're leading with purpose. What is your purpose? One of the funny things about uh, w walking your path is that the more you walk it, the <laughs> the more um, refined that your self concept and your self definition, and you get really clear about what you're good at and what's not your ministry, right? And so I started off because I'm good with. Um, details and I'm good with pattern recognition and understanding how the how the big picture fits into you know like looking at uh -huh. the granular stuff and making it be the big picture. So I started off with um, just like within Charles Schwab, it was about sales. People would come to me and their presenting problem was I need more revenue. And sometimes the more revenue was the problem, but the symptom was, or, or or some of the variables that were influencing that was poor team cohesion, or perhaps it was poor communication, or perhaps you didn't have an offer that was clear enough, or you had the wrong, you were marketing it to the wrong market and so forth. So we were able to kind of like pinpoint these pieces operationally and then have the company, you know, rise to the level of their expectations and their goals and their vision. But then the deeper that I looked, the more that I realized that that almost every single business problem is really a personal development problem in disguise. And it's really more about challenging that person's, not challenging, me challenging, but that they are challenging themselves and who they say that they are and what they're here to do in the world. Yeah. And, and how does that play out in light of your assumptions? How does that play out in light of social expectations? How does that play out in light of what your parents wanted for your life? Because mm -hmm. many people are still driven by that. Um, and so when we can articulate that and when we can navigate the emotional kind of like landmines of saying no to some of the things that may be so important, it may be important for somebody to follow the path that they that their parents said they ought to follow. But, but it's not important for the reason they think it is. It's not so that because that's your destiny, the reason you're doing that is because you want mama's love, because you want daddy's yes. approval or whatever the case may be. And when you can understand that that's the driving emotional force behind some of your actions, then we can get interested and curious about how else could you get that emotional need met without yes. you having to give up sanity, without having to give up personal and professional satisfaction, because there is a way to do a win-win here. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And so my work has evolved from how do we get more sales and how do we get this marketing launch campaign strategy to work to who do you say that you are and how mm -hmm. can you be a better leader, not only in your department or in your company or in your business, but like everywhere you go, you leave the world right. better than you found it. 
And that sounds like a tall order, but but you're here for big things. If you were a small right. person, I'd be talking to you about small issues. You're right. <laughs> so if you could encapsulate your purpose, what would how would you do that? My purpose is to awaken people to their greatness so that they awaken the world to their purpose. Boy, that is no small mission. You see what I mean? So listen, I've always been fascinated by the divine and divine intelligence, yeah. and not from a religious standpoint, but more from like a, a mystical, you know, direct access kind of thing. And I grew up Catholic, as most people in Latin America and the Caribbean do. And I don't know if you know this about Catholics, but you don't ask questions. <laughs> I was raised Catholic as well. Okay. So I, I, so I understand you know. that. Yes. So you know. I got Here's how it's so written many. in the catechism book. That's yes. all you need to know. Just memorize that and be able to answer those questions and you'll be good. Man, <laughs> I got kicked out of so many catechism classes. My parents were like, just stay home. Just stay home and just don't make any noise. Okay. Let yeah. me just deal with your brother and your sister. And so when I left home to go to, uh, first to go to boarding school, then to go to undergrad, um, I was like, ooh, now I can go to the library. Now I can go to the like philosophy teachers and the religious teachers and ask them questions that, that people didn't have answers for me for. And I remember one of the things that I first came across was that most of the names of God have the ah sound to it, A-H, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, even in English, which has the word God with the letter O in it, still has the ah sound, God, uh, right? So I, when I was 14, I changed my name to add the H at the end. And my parents were livid. They were like, that's not the name we gave you. Why would you do that? You're just being a rebellious teenager. You're just trying to yeah. do your own thing and blah, blah, blah. And they didn't know that it was like, I'm, I'm trying to access my own divinity here. And I'm yeah. trying to, you know, this is my own path or whatever. How do you say that when you're 14? Do you like your parents right. are busy, exactly. you know, paying right. bills and stuff? Um, and it took them a long time to understand it. But the reason why my, my name when I was born was M-O-N-I-K-A. And then mm -hmm. when I turned 14, I started using M-O-N-I-K-A-H, which has been the way. And then when I became a citizen of the United States and you're able to change your name, they're like, you don't want another name? It's like, no, I want my name, the name right. I chose for myself, which is the one right. with the H at the end. And so for me, every time somebody says my name, it, for me, is a reminder that you're calling forth the divine intelligence in me for mm -hmm. your divine intelligence. So right. I'm, I'm tasked with not only being my highest version of myself, but seeing the highest version of yourself in you. So I've rescinded the right to be petty and ratchet and, mm -hmm. <laughs> and low. <laughs> yeah, like, right. You decided not to go that route. <laughs> oh my and so it allows me to, for me, that's that's been the kind of like the, the color. You, you're talking about purpose. It's like, okay, well, that's the purple of my purpose. Mm -hmm. It's the color of that theme. It's it's what gives it texture. It's what gives it, you know, juiciness and richness to be able to say, yeah, and mm -hmm. you too are an expression of the divine. And I see that. And and the, when it's hardest, when people are at their lowest or at their darkest, sure. or when people are doing things that you don't morally approve of, mm -hmm. um, killing a perfectly law-abiding citizen in their sleep, for example, which just happened recently with Amir Locke, um, then, then this is the time. It's for, for, time, for such a time as this. Mm -hmm. In the midst of darkness is when the light is most useful. Right. You know, otherwise you're just another bulb in the, on right. the stadium. Right, right, you on know? the marquee, right? Yeah. Okay, so you're, you want to help others see their greatness so that they can turn around and bring out the greatness 
of their team members. Yeah, yes. that sounds kind of very cheerleading, right? But it's it's actually okay. very, <laughs> it's very science driven. This is one of the things that I talk about, like matching Dharma with data, right? Because mm. it's the, the Dharma piece is the purpose and the, you know, life satisfaction survey that you might fill out at the end of your life or whatever. But then it's like, okay, but how? What's, what's the observe? How do I know? I don't know you from Adam. Mm-hmm. So how can I look in your life and say that person is living their purpose? What are the measurable, observable things that I can see that you can define that I can then observe to be able to say Mary's living on in her purpose. She's being the best version of herself. Now, for some people that may be health, fitness, nutrition, family structure, how you spend your time, how much money you have, what kind of profession you are. What are you in the right, but the right button, the right seat, you know, there's many mm-hmm. ways to measure that. And yeah. that part is self-designed. But then once you self-design that, then you have to determine, well, again, like I said before, what's the easiest, most integrative and congruent way to get there? And then measure those milestones so that you can see whether you're on track, how to interrupt yourself. And then you have to become your own interruption machine. You have to call yourself on your own bullshit. You have to be able to say, you know, I'm, I'm giving up this purpose for this payoff because I'm much more interested in being comfortable than I am on being aligned. And to be able to say that about yourself to yourself, if to no one else, right. is one of the most courageous things that you can do as a human being is to be able to call yourself on your own limitations so that you can put them aside. Because it's kind of like, you know how some mamas, I mean, I don't know if your mama did this, but my mama always said, she said, <laughs> I brought you in this world. I can take you out. Yeah. But then she added, because she's Dominican and just extra. She's just so telemundo. She's like, and make another one just like you. <laughs> so, so it was like oh that's also the way that we do with our limitations i brought you into my awareness i can take you out yes. and if i need to make another one like you i can because lord have mercy our monkey brain right right brilliant i've never heard it described that way and i love it yes we can <laughs> I, I, you know, I think that when we become aware of our patterns, right, our default patterns, either the way we see things or what we believe about ourselves or what we're valuing, um, when we start to look at that, sometimes we're disappointed, sometimes we're like shocked, like, oh my gosh, I really, I yeah. would say that about myself kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. But um, to be able to to just look at that and say, it's not permanent, right? This is not something that I, I have to be with forever. I can, if I like it, I can keep you. If I don't like it, yeah. I can let you go. You're out the door. Yes. We're moving on to something else. Yes. It's, and that's, that's freedom to me. Well, that's, and that's the part that's kind of like the, the, how the door creaks open. Um, do you remember the book, uh, the road less traveled by M. Yes. Scott Peck? Did you ever read that? Yes. So he tells a story in that book, which I've never forgotten it. I mean, that book is like, you know, generations 80s ago, right? or 90s. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember he told a story. He was a military psychiatrist and he was working with spouses of military personnel. And this woman came in, her husband is in the military and she came in. She's like, I'm always depressed. I'm just always depressed. There's nothing I can do. I'm just always depressed. And he was like, how do I get through to this woman? And he says, okay, I want you to go home and I want you to note degrees. Like right. we know that it's always depression, but how much? Is it like at a hundred percent? Is it at ten percent? I mean, we know it's not a zero, and we right. know it's not happiness. It didn't. It doesn't cross to the positive side. So okay, let's just measure the degrees of negativity that this depression has, right? 
So she goes home and she's just a dutiful student and she does her homework and she journals today. I feel at a 10 today. I feel at a 20, whatever. Um, she comes back to the next session and he asks her, let me ask you something. The part of you that was observing your depression, is that part also depressed? And it stopped her. She was like, wait, what? There's a, there's a part of me that's the observer yes. that is neither attached nor interested nor influenced by this story called my life. Right. And so, and that's the part where I share with, with my clients and with students and my, uh, in consulting engagements that it's like, when you tell yourself, Oh my God, I'm such an idiot. Mm -hmm. It's not that you're an idiot. It's that you're having the thought that you're an idiot. There's a difference between your identity right. and the observer having a thought that self-defines. So if you can have a thought that self-defines this way, you can have a thought that self-defines that way. Right. And your identity is it, not litigable. Like you can't litigate this. You've already been right. created by your creator, however you define yes. it. Yes, yes. Who you, but who you say you are is up to you. Who you are is already established. For me, that's perfect, whole, and complete emanation of the divine. For you, it might be whatever it is that you define it. Who you sure. are has already been defined, and it's not for litigation. Who you say you are, how you show up. And we already know that because there are some days, even inside of the same 24-hour period, there are some mornings where you're not available for human consumption. And then there are some right. other time, you know, there's another hour in the day where you're like, ah, bring it on. Where is everybody? Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> in the same day. So yeah, oh, yes. in the same life. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. That's beautiful. Monica, this has been such an enlightening and enjoyable conversation. I thank you so much for bringing your heart and soul to this today. Absolutely. Uh, before we go, I want make, to make sure that the listeners know where they can learn more about you, where they can find you. What do you have for them? So I have a, my newest book is called Your Business is Sacred. And for some people, I mean, what? And, and there's a play on words, right? Because in some religious traditions and in some uh, religious scriptures it says that you have to be about your father's business and so how do i make sure that my worldly business is aligned with the business of my soul and so mm -hmm. that's that's part of what we go into into your business is sacred so you can find that in my website monicaoganda.com beautiful beautiful thank you again um I, I love ending on this ending with building your business and, and aligning it with your soul. That's the whole name of the show exactly. was, was all about with that intention. You know, you had said earlier too, you know, as you, as you go down the path, who you are becomes clearer, your, you know, your, your purpose and all of that becomes more clear. And that is mm -hmm. so true um, for me as well. Uh, yeah. Just this is the show is an example of that. So I'm very honored to have you share this with us today, share your heart and soul with us. So thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate you. And I, I love, um, you know, one of the things that I do is take people on a sacred mystery school tour in Egypt. We go every year in September. And one of the breakthroughs that they have when they go there is that they recognize how some of the different religious traditions or, or spiritual modalities that they have explored, it was, it's almost like finding the source of the river. When wow. they go to Egypt, they're like, oh, this is where they got it from, you know? Yeah. And so to be able to see how everything ties together sometimes is the 
I can see the peace that it gives people to know that, th no, you, this is not an accident. Albert Einstein was quoted as saying, the biggest decision that you'll ever make is whether you live in a friendly or an unfriendly universe. Because out of that decision, all other decisions flow. If you think that you live in an unfriendly universe, you're going to look for the disappointments. You're going to look for the betrayals. You're going to look for the letdowns. But if you live in a friendly universe, you're looking for how all this shit works together for your good. Right, right. And so when you realize that, you're like, Waiting for the okay. Where's the good news? Where's the gift? Where's where's Santa Claus? You know, and it's it's a a way of being an expectation of blessings in the world that allows other people to see the silver linings in their own lives as well. Absolutely, beautiful words to end on. Thank you again. Thank you. Hi, this is Mary. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope that you are coming away feeling maybe a little inspired, maybe a little more informed, or maybe just rested. Most of all, I hope you're coming away feeling empowered. If you do, please leave me a five-star review on iTunes. But most importantly, please pass along this sense of empowerment to your friends and to your networks. Thank you so much for your support. I appreciate you.